like I start off our portion of the show by giving a taste of a little something we call Rock and Roll! 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 It's still Rock and Roll to me. All right, welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. I'm Don DiMuccio. Today, we have a very special guest whose name you may or may not be familiar with, but I can almost guarantee you've seen more than just a few of his now iconic rock photographs. From a mustard-smeared face of Sid Vicious eating a hot dog, to Debbie Harry crawling out of an overturned car, to Led Zeppelin poised triumphantly in front of their personalized Boeing 720 jet, and the classic images of John Lennon in front of the Statue of Liberty. Photojournalist Bob Grumman is considered one of the most revered rock insiders, who for the first time is telling the backstory behind capturing those legendary images in his soon-to-be-released autobiography, Right Place, Right Time, The Life of a Rock and Roll Photographer. And Bob Gruen will be here shortly to give us a preview. But first, our returning champion, who is more machine now than man. I always wanted to say that. He can write you a song that'll stick in your head for a week, perform at your wedding, and teach your kid, all without breaking a sweat. All uh, at the same time, for that matter. True enough. Co-host for today, David DJ Loria. Yeah, thank you very much, Don. It's so good to be back with you. I have been following the podcast, and you've just had so many great guests and great shows, and you're killing it. And honestly, I can't figure out why your audience isn't bigger than it is. Yeah, I know. I got like uh, you and mom and your mom. So that's it's, it's growing. Well, I, you know, my mom does enjoy it though, and uh, she particularly uh, enjoyed uh, the old blues stories with some of the artists that you had earlier on. So, so more of that stuff, please, and less of you. First question it says here that you're a musician. Is that true? Am I under oath? No. Okay. Oh yeah, absolutely, <laughs> I am. Of course. Now, hey, uh, you know, uh, as as uh, you have done, I've uh, been making my way for decades in the New England and Rhode Island area, and uh, doing all kinds of different things. I mean, who foresaw back in uh, 1989 that you would be the host of this fabulously uh, successful podcast, interviewing and and putting aside the exaggeration for a second, interviewing. Linda Ronstadt and uh, just a ton of of top name people who we idolized growing up. I tip my hat to you. It is it is fantastic. Thank you. That's, that's very kind to say. But I'm telling you, all seriousness, I'm learning so much about people that I you know that I've admired all my life, and it's just it's a cool thing to be able to talk to them and just have a conversation with them. I mean, in a sense, uh, you and I and uh, all of our, our fellow musicians, we've been hosting podcasts on the way back from gigs yeah, right. for how many years, right? It's right. really the same thing. It's true. And I just wanted it to be something where musicians can feel free to talk about, you know, just whatever's happening. I mean, the COVID thing, obviously, was something that's affecting everyone. And it's funny how whether you're Robert Gordon or you're us, we're all in the same boat. We're all just waiting to be able to get back out there. And it's funny, too, like our good friend Ted Stevens, who's in a different part of the country than us. That's another dynamic that's kind of interesting how people and he, you know, they've been open for, you know, what, months. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, it's just it's a totally different deal politically and don't want to get too much into that. But it well, is- but even for him uh, living in Florida, there are changes. There are different things. There's suddenly all these online virtual concerts. And he kills it, of course, because he's Teddy and he's great no matter what he's doing. But uh, everyone has had to at least adjust. Uh, for some people, this has absolutely thrown their lives upside down. And that is horrible. And I feel nothing but but worry and empathy for them and people who have lost people. Uh, But even just for those of us, perhaps who it hasn't affected directly, it's affected us directly and we're all doing different stuff. But it's a Democrat hoax. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what was that thing about not getting political? It's out the window. All right, MAGA. So (laughs) musicians are going to be okay because, you know, if you have your talent, that can't be stripped from you. Can I say that's probably the first time in the history of the English language that someone has said musicians are going to be okay? That's true. I know. <laughs> but they are. In all reality, it's the club owners and the the live venue owners, the smaller ones. I feel bad for them. It's uh, it's awful. It's decimating the industry. Yeah. I, there, I, it's, how many restaurants have closed permanently already? Yes. Oh, it's terrible. It yeah. is terrible. But, you know, we've obviously we're young. We've seen many, many years of peacetime and no war, really, that's ever come to our shores. You talk to your grandparents. This is nothing compared to what they went through. Sure. We're all a bunch of little pussies in the end, aren't we? I, I mean, we always have been. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't yeah. see why things would change now, really. I was thinking about, you know, in terms of what has affected the scene as tremendously as this. And and obviously, it did not have the the human impact in the end. But think back to uh, RISDIC in the early 90s yes. and what that did to Rhode Island. And I think that you're seeing a similar effect here where there's just going to end up being kind of a culling of the herd. And there's going to be so many restaurants and clubs and and, and bands and uh, recording artists who just end up not coming back to it once we get past it. That's the one thing in the local scene that I think compares. And and again, I'm not uh, not conflating the two in terms of, of, no. of the human impact, right, but, but right. in terms of the economic impact, I think that they're they're similar. I know of three clubs that we used to play at were affected by RISDIC and closed down. Mm-hmm. In that sense, it is a good analogy. Now, for you, have you been doing any gigs at all? Have you been participating in that whole, you know, any of the shows at drive-ins or... <laughs> I, you know, I, the, the county fair circuit isn't happening this year. I don't know what I'm going to do. I, it's the, the, uh, we would usually set up over between the, uh, the cotton candy and the fried sticks of butter. That was like the sweet spot for my particular band. And uh, I, we'd have possibly five, six, seven, eight people watching at a time. But you know my story. We, black and white, we do our uh-huh. annual gazebo tour. Yes. <laughs> well, I've, I've done some You've of those gigs with those. you. Right, yeah. right, right. Only, only the finest gazebos, though. Oh, that's, of course. That's, you know, there was a time when you were playing some gazebos that were complete shitholes. I know, I know. But, you know, we, we graduated to the one with the one light bulb hanging in the middle. It's got it gets- an, an outlet where one of the, the things works and doesn't have a prong stuck in the bottom of it. Well, yeah, but you have to have a choice. Either you're going to have a PA or the guitar amps hooked <laughs> up. Can't have both. The fuse ain't okay. going to hold forever. Well, all right. I mean, you're not Barry Manilow here. No, 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 no. Thank God. Um, no. <laughs> No, I haven't. Uh, so, getting back to your actual question, I, I haven't. I we my working band right now is a tribute to George Harrison, which is called "By George." Please check us out at bygeorge.band.
or nice. on Facebook, of course. And um, and we are very much a summer type thing. Summer festivals, yeah. the outdoor stuff, a lot of the same types of things that you do. And everything that we had that was booked was canceled. There's this phenomenal tribute to George Harrison called Harrafest, which happens once a year, usually in September. Uh, which Rachel uh, Cabral puts together and is just this all-day Beatles extravaganza. That was canceled. That's been pushed off to 2021. So uh, all of that stuff is gone. We've talked about doing some live online things and and may get to that at the at some point. But um, yeah, the the live music thing has, has just not been happening this year. All right. I got to go here because uh, George Harrison, love him, okay. obviously. Uh, sure. How deep into the catalog do you go? Like, what's some of your deepest tracks? So we're working into it. And and so it, it, you start a band like this and you need to get all of the obvious ones right off the top. Of we cover George in all of his eras. And I think unlike other than McCartney, I mean, McCartney has had success, obviously, since since the 80s. But to me, the last giant blast of a Beatle was was George in the late 80s when he had the Cloud Nine album and the Traveling Wilburys, yeah. uh, you know, one right after the other. That was, he was like on top. So we cover, you know, that era and all of his solo stuff from the 70s and his Beatles stuff from the 60s. Basically, if George wrote it, we'll do it. Now, in terms of deep tracks... We're starting to get into some of those middle period albums, right? Uh, for a lot of people, it's All Things Must Pass, Living in the Material World, Cloud Nine. Yes. And you've got 13 or 14 years in there uh, of, of where he was putting out albums almost every year other than one uh, break in the early 80s. So there's a lot of great material in there. Uh, the song that we were going to add, which I hope that you know, and it just was phenomenal, was a top 40 hit at the time, but it's one of those at-the-time songs that people don't end up remembering. Can I guess? Go ahead. You. No. No, although another great song. All right, this uh, song. Uh, another great one and one that I've thought about, but you only get two uh, two guesses. All right, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry, it's uh, Blow Away. Oh, beautiful song. Wonderful, wonderful song. And uh, just a great example of uh, George, man, you know, was a good guitarist in the Beatles. I, I'm I'm not going to say that he was one of those top fifty guitarists of all time, Rolling Stone type things. First of all, I don't believe in those lists anyway. But well, I disagree second with of all, you. you don't think he's 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 in the fifty in general? Well, well so let me finish. No. I, I would say I would oh. say <laughs> my show. Damn it. You, you you think you get to talk on this podcast? Uh, so based on his Beatles stuff, lots of great stuff, and definitely a very good guitarist. But he is one person that I think of more than anyone else who sort of found his calling well into his career. Yeah, he didn't play slide in the Beatles, and yet when I think of slide guitar, I think of Dwayne Allman and then George Harrison. Right, and they're one and two. And George really had that that ability to create these beautiful melodic pieces, which so very few other people did with slide. I, I, I just, to be so associated with something that you didn't do for the first chunk of your career, I, I think that speaks to what a great musician the guy was. It's a good point. What's unfortunate is that those releases you talk about in the 70s, mm -hmm. post uh, Living in the Material World, were so hit or miss. They were so unbalanced. Oh, I disagree. Uh, oh my gosh. It's a hot, dumping hot takes on me here. Uh, so I think that uh, 33 and a third Great and his, and his self-titled are both strong albums 
all the way through. Gontropo, not so uh, much. All right. Can I tell you something about that album? Mm. The songs on that album are fine. The production is what makes people turn on that record. And and I have this 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 long-term fantasy. God only knows if I'll ever get to it, but I would love to do a song-for-song re-recording of that album in the style of All Things Must Pass. Put aside all of the dated 80s production on the thing, Mm -hmm. strip away and get back to those songs. And I am willing to bet that you would listen to it and go, yeah, okay. All right, it's George. It's another great George record. Okay, okay. Now, whether or not I ever do that, literally, I just said that I'm going to do it, which means there's no chance I'm ever going to do it. (laughs) Right. Well, you're a busy guy. Speaking of which, teaching. Yeah. Now, how do you teach music remotely? Tell me how that's done. So if you figure it out, could you let me know? I think you have uh, figured it out, though. Yeah, no. We're, we're, I mean, I mean, these are the discussions that we are having constantly. I, uh, I teach. I'm the choral director at a local regional high school, and we've been fully or uh, mostly virtual since March. And when you're trying to teach ensembles, I mean, this is the antithesis of what an ensemble does. So what I'm doing this year is uh, we do have students in the school at like 25% capacity. So the way that it works out is you get to be in the building one day a week. Most of the rest of the students are on the computer while that's happening. So what I'm doing is I am giving the students at home stuff to work on. They're, they're all learning their parts and, and, and we're practicing that stuff. There's a lot of web videos, YouTube stuff that I'm creating and giving them to help them learn their parts. The students who are in front of me, if we have a nice day, we'll go outside and we'll spread way out and follow all of the correct guidelines and we'll sing outside for half an hour. If it's not a nice day, we're going to stay inside and just work on music theory and reading music and all of that stuff. So none of the time is wasted. Everybody's getting something from it. Right. It's just that when you get to the end and you need to put it together, how are you going to do that? And and truly, that's a work in progress. Uh, you know, every year we do the Christmas lightings in Warren and Bristol. Those are the towns that I'm in. And it's the end of November, beginning of December. It's like 25 degrees out sometimes. Could we still do those this year? Possibly. Uh, if we're out and we're spread out enough, could we could maybe do something like that. So I, we'll see how those gigs work out. And that, that would give us a chance to actually sing in front of people. But um, otherwise, it's recording. It's it's doing those those Brady Bunch type videos. Oh, yeah. Which, which we put a bunch of them together uh, at the end of last year. We made some up for graduation. And... Uh, in fact, here's the thing. We had all these seniors whose lives were just destroyed by COVID. In the sense of looking at it from a teenager's point of view, where it's your senior year, you have all of these things to look forward to, and none of them happen. So uh, we ended up recording an entire album uh, with some original music on it, uh, a bunch of covers. We went all the way back to the early 1900s so that we could get around having to pay anyone for copyright and did... Uh, reworking of of old songs and made an 11 song album that we put together in two and a half months i love the title it sums up 2020 so perfectly thank you from the inside out yeah yeah that was it and it's it's beautiful i did i heard uh give my regards to broadway and (laughs) that's cool (laughs) yeah we rearranged them and one of the songs was a, a choral piece that i had written called called you love 
And the students had this great idea. And again, always look to them, right? Because they'll, they'll lead you through it. So uh, we knew that we needed to put together a video for it. And we also knew that everyone in the world was doing one of those videos where everybody's in the little boxes all together. <laughs> so how are we going to make this stand out? And um, one of my students suggested, you know, there are so many people out there right now who are putting their lives on the lines who were never meant to be essential workers, like like not to take away from what the police and fire do because it, it's extraordinary. But grocery store workers at that time, we didn't know anything about this, right? They right. were risking their lives to get you food, yep. right? uh, postal workers, the whole bit. So uh, she said, why don't we make the video a tribute to them? And we got stills and video of all the people we knew who were doing those kinds of gigs, restaurant workers, everybody. And uh, we put that together as sort of a montage to thank those people for their contributions at the time. And, and I'm super proud of how it came out. And where can people see this? So that's on our YouTube channel, which is Mount Hope Music. Uh, Mount is spelled M-T period. Please don't ask why. Uh, we're also on, all of our stuff is on uh, Facebook and iTunes and all of the usual audio uh, streaming services, but the uh, video itself is is on our YouTube channel. That's the only place to see that. And all the funds raised from the uh, downloads goes to your chain of corrupt nursing homes. Uh, I've been skimming off the top for, I believe, three decades now. And nice. I almost, I almost have enough money to buy a used car. Well, uh, hey, hang in I there. <laughs> No, actually, the uh, the money from the video, not that there's... Well, we, we, we ran a, a concurrent fundraiser, so yeah. we had a GoFundMe going. And the money from the GoFundMe, which we did raise, I think, about $1,000, uh, went to the Providence Rescue Mission, Good. which is nice. just such a fantastic organization who helped not just in Providence, but uh, the underprivileged and homeless all over the state. And again, we felt that, especially at that time in March and April and May... Uh, that those people were in such danger and we wanted to do something to help them. Oh, you're doing a beautiful thing. So changing gears a little bit, Dave. Now, Dave, you're about the same age I am. Where are we yeah, all about? That? You know, we grew up in the 80s, late 70s. Sure. Remember those rock magazines we'd pick up? Cream, uh, Hip Parade and all that. We'd look at all our favorite bands. Or... I read all of them and I had subscriptions to most. Of course. And Absolutely. those great photos. You know, I, I never stopped at the, as a kid. I don't think any of us did and said... Wow, what a cool job that is. We all wanted to be the musicians. Whoever thought that being a rock photographer, that's a hell of a job too. That's a great job. And you know, we, we always thought about, uh, well, I don't know about you, but but to me, like Cameron Crowe, we knew about. Yeah. Uh, because somehow as a teenager, he managed to slip unnoticed backstage with all these bands and write these amazing stories for Rolling Stone. But I have to admit, I didn't give the pictures a whole lot of thought. Boy, they should make a movie about him. Almost oh. something. Is, isn't 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 Goldie Hawn's mother in there? I'm very confused. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's true. You just never thought of it. First time I ever really thought about rock photography would be probably after John Lennon died, because the Annie Leibovitz photo became so famous. Yeah. Um, and I started seeing a lot of pictures of John in front of the Statue of Liberty, and then you kept seeing this name, Bob Gruen, Bob Gruen. And I always associated him with, with Lennon, but there's so much more sure. that he was a part of that whole scene. And all, I don't mean all the Led Zeppelin stuff. Yeah. Kiss dressed in their suits. 
Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I forgot in, that one. In the yeah. business suits. The uh-huh. crazy ones of um, Blondie um, mm-hmm. crawling out of a car accident that they just yeah. happened to cross. And crazy stuff. And um, in fact, me and you were talking a little bit before we started. And it is amazing how he was like this kind of zealot figure just there in the background at all these amazing pivotal times in rock history. He just seemed to have this sense of catching what was happening. And and there's nothing false about it. There's There's nothing staged about it. It's just... I, I I mentioned Zeppelin, uh, the picture of them in front of their their tour jet, <laughs> and and there's just that sort of plant is just radiating this. It, that's not the Golden God picture that I think of, but but he was just radiating that that sort of sense. It's it's such a perfect encapsulation of what they were at that time, and how good do you have to be to make something look that effortless? And you know the dirty little secret there that is not their jet. That well, jet was used it. for Elton John. It yeah. was, uh, I think it was called the, the Enterprise or the Starship. The Starship. The Starship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. But you're right. He was able to just get these bands at their prime. And even the bands that were not well known at the time, but they were up and coming. The CBGB crew, you know? Um, yeah, the Sex Pistols. Sex Pistols, the Ramones, yeah. Talking Heads, all those bands. As a matter of fact, in one way or another, whether it was an album cover or a 45 cover, Bob Gruen was associated with these artists. Check it out. Music at its core is every bit as much a visual medium as it is a sonic one. And what the producer does to capture the sound, rock photographers, at least the good ones, are tasked to capture the imagery and ethereal magic of rock and roll. And today's guest is peerless when it comes to catching lightning in a bottle, as his photos of John Lennon, Led Zeppelin, the Sex Pistols, the Ramones, and hundreds of others have gained icon status. And for the first time, he's telling the stories behind those pictures in his upcoming autobiography, Right Place, Right Time, The Life of a Rock and Roll Photographer. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Bob Gruen. Good morning, Bob. Hi, thanks for having me. 
Oh, it's truly an honor having you on the show today. And I, I want to get into the history of how you got started. But first, I got to ask you, you've put out photo books before of your work, but never something so personal as an autobiography. What made you decide that this was the right time to do this? Well, I've been telling stories to people all my life. And for 30 years, people have been saying, you should write a book. So I finally did. It's been fun, uh, you know, reminiscing and adding it all up. There are a lot of pictures in the book, but they illustrate the stories. It's not that the captions illustrate the pictures. Right. So it's very different in the sense that it is a book of words that you read. Well, for you, what came first, your passion for rock and roll or for photography? Uh, well, I learned photography before there was rock and roll. Uh, I learned when I was about four or five years old, my mom had a dark room because photography was her hobby. So she used to develop and print her own pictures. And when I was too big to go to sleep early and too little to leave out in the house, she took me in the dark room with her and taught me how to do it. And so I've been doing that ever since. Rock and roll came about five or six years later, uh, but changed my life. And I kind of uh, fell into a rock and roll lifestyle. Mm -hmm. uh, after high school, um, I tried a couple of colleges, but that didn't really work. So I lived with a rock and roll band. You know, the idea of turn on, tune in and drop out turned out to be the right path for the rest of my life. Now, your mom, was she taking a lot of photos? Was she, was it most angled? No, my mom was an attorney. Uh, my mom actually graduated from law school uh, in 1932, one of only five women in a class of 200 men. Wow. But photography was her hobby, and she enjoyed taking pictures and developing them herself, but mostly family pictures. I mean, she didn't do any art pictures or reporting or journalism or anything like that. Do you remember the early equipment you had? Uh, yes, actually. Um, I started getting really interested when I was five. So when I'm, for my eighth birthday, I still remember waking up and it was a box next to my pillow. And it was a kit with a brownie Hawkeye camera and a flash attachment. And that was my first camera. Um, I used that for a couple of years till um, for my 13th birthday, I got an actual 35 millimeter camera, which was still relatively simple, but advanced in the sense that I could focus it and um, set some of the speeds and things. Right. And then actually, I think when I was about 14, uh, because I started taking pictures when I was 11 and selling them to people in, my, in our town, they would have dances and you know benefit dinners and things. And I would go there and take pictures of all the people dressed up in their fancy clothes and sell them you know, with a Polaroid for $5. And people thought I was like kind of young using his dad's camera or something. And I actually went and bought what's called a crown graphic. And if you look at all the 1940s and 50s pictures of all the press photographers, yeah. they have a big square camera that's about a foot square. Oh, yeah. And it takes one frame at a time, a four by five inch piece of film. And it's very uh, formal and professional. And I got one of those. And then instead of saying that looks like a kid with his dad's camera, people started saying like, oh, he's awfully young to be a photographer. Yeah. Because nobody would carry one of those cameras unless they were actually a photographer. And I just have always been taking pictures and uh, trying to get by that way. And the first few published photos of yours, they weren't of musicians at all. Uh, no, actually, the very first picture that was published was a picture I took of a fire. Uh, I was coming home and I saw the fireman running up a building and I went and took pictures of that and got it published in the local paper. And uh, our high school actually had a printing shop class where we had presses and silk screening and things like that. I, I really enjoyed the class and I learned a lot there about how photographs reproduce and printing and so on. We had a, a after school group called the Printer's Devils and we actually got written up for having so much interest in the print shop. My first cover picture was a picture I took of our class gathered around a press for the print shop magazine. Uh, and then actually, when I was 15, 16, the, when they were running the elections, um, I remember I used to go to the political picnics, basically, to get a hot dog or a drink. But I took pictures of all the politicians. And one year, I think when I was 16, both the Republican and the Democratic state senator were using my photos for their posters. Wow. I'm, I'm nonpartisan in that sense. <laughs> well, I was back then. I'm not now. <laughs> Did I see a, a photo of Kennedy in there that you took? 
I actually have pictures I took off the TV of the Nixon-Kennedy debate. President Kennedy talked at Roseville Field out of Long Island near where I was, uh, where, where I grew up. And I went out there to see him and, uh, and got a couple of pictures as he came walking by. And what was uh, unique that I remember is as he came walking by, I was like in the front of a whole crowd of people. And there's people pushing a little bit. And he accidentally stepped on my toe. And he stopped and turned around and said, excuse me. Wow. Which I was really impressed, you know, that he was kind of a busy guy. Yeah. But, uh, but he was aware, you know, he was very human about that. And uh, that impressed me. Uh, among everything else that impressed me about him. Oh, God, yeah. Now, I know in 1965, you traveled to my neck of the woods, Newport, Rhode Island, for the folk festival. You must have been about, what, 19, 20 years old? Right. A couple of times. That infamous particular one you witnessed, Dylan, backed up by uh, Mike Bloomfield and Al Cooper. Tell me your memories. Well, it was pretty, really exciting. I mean, the song Subterranean Homesick Blues had come out a little earlier. I think even Like a Rolling Stone might have been out by then. Um, so they could have expected that he was going to play a more electrified set. Muddy Waters and a couple of the other uh, blues players had used the electric guitar, but for some reason, it wasn't just that Dylan played with an electric guitar, but he played with a rock and roll band, and it was a different beat than the slow blues. And um, and since he was revered as the folk icon of the protest movement, when he came out wailing away with a rock and roll band, a lot of people were very upset. A lot of people liked it. And it was the most unique thing because people started booing and people started cheering and then they started yelling at each other. And it was just kind of chaos. Very weird to see people cheering and booing at the same time. <laughs> how does it feel? Ah, how does it feel? Be on your own. I do remember that Bob Dylan came out with Spanish boots, tight pants, an orange, which was really weird, a very bright orange shirt with a black leather jacket. And he just looked cool. He didn't look like a folk singer, you know, shabby or trying to look like a farmer. He looked like a rock star. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that might have upset people. Just the way he looked was uh, different. You know, it was very much rock and roll. And yours was one of the only color photos that I've seen of him at Newport. Yeah, it's interesting. Over the years, I haven't seen any others until just about two years ago or three years ago. Uh, they auctioned the guitar. I think Sotheby's auctioned the guitar that Dylan is playing at Newport. And they managed to find one or two other pictures. I know Jim Marshall was there. And I know David Garr, who both represented folkways and sing out uh, folk, ma folk music magazines. And I actually didn't represent anybody. I had kind of talked my way in uh, with a fictitious letter saying I represented an ad agency uh, which didn't do anything about music but I managed to get a pass um, and actually my picture wasn't out for a couple of years because I didn't have any clue of who to send it to or where to send a picture I didn't know any magazines or anything Right. but that's why I've always been surprised that neither David or Jim Marshall's pictures uh, get around very much Yeah, yeah. Uh, but my picture seems to be everywhere and I know you went to Woodstock and from what I read you went for the same reason I would have made the trip if I had been alive at that time to see The Who <laughs> yeah I'm a Who fan and by that time, anytime the Who played within 100 miles in New York, I was there. 
I saw him at Forest Hills in the rain. I saw him at uh, Fillmore when the theater caught fire. I, I was a Who fan. And uh, I remember getting, I remember I was in my studio. I remember where I was sitting at the desk and I got the village voice and opened up and there's this big ad about three days of peace and love and music. And there was all different names on there, like Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin, who was great. And I, I'd go see Janis. But right in the middle, it said the Who, and I just took out my checkbook and I wrote, I had a check and I bought four tickets. Uh, which I still have. Oh, that's <laughs> I still cool. collected the tickets. But yeah, we had a great time. I went as a camper. I just gotten married. I went with my wife and a couple of friends. I'm a good camper. I generally bring food and equipment to cook and a tent and sleeping bag. So we were very comfortable at Woodstock, actually. Uh, we had a really good time. How close were you to the action? Well, we weren't by the stage. That hillside was rather crowded. And after a couple of days, it kind of smelled. At the top of the stage, kind of up towards the right, there was a big woods with pathways through the woods and uh, on the other side of that was another field and that's where we were camping right next to where the hog farm commune had set up the free food yeah because actually a friend of mine had gone up i think tuesday night the festival started friday and we were going to go up friday morning because i had a job i couldn't leave too early my friend went up on Tuesday or something, and anyway, uh, by Thursday, the radio stations were all saying it was too crowded, too many people, the roads are jammed, you can't get there. And my friend called me up, and he said, man, you got to get here, this is the coolest place ever. And I said, the radio says it's all crowded. He goes, no, no, we'll save a space for your tent. And our little group of friends, we had, back then you'd have what we call a freak flag. Mm-hmm. where you just make up some weird kind of flag. I think ours was orange and green. And you put that up on the top. He said, you'll, si- you'll see it. I said, well, the place is a big place. How am I going to find you? He said, well, right next to the place called the Hog Farm, and they have the free food. I said, well, I can find free food. <laughs> so I did. I found them. Because <laughs> oh, then I remember the end of the conversation. I said, How, where are you calling me from? And he said, well, there's a phone nailed to a tree in the woods. <laughs> And I thought any place sophisticated enough to have a phone nailed to a tree, uh, you know, at least I wasn't totally, you know, secluded. So I went and we got there and it was amazing. Did you bring any uh, camera equipment with you? I actually, uh, I wasn't working as a photographer yet. I I was working in a photo studio, actually, uh, taking pictures of artwork for the studio. Yeah. Uh, But I wasn't really taking pictures of music or anything like that yet. And I did bring a camera and about two thirds of the pictures that I took are pictures, portraits of my friends. Mm. kind of headshots inside the tent so you have like a smiling young guy uh, with a green screen behind (laughs) just the tent wall i do have actually half a dozen pictures that i took at the festival and on my website bobgruen.com if you go to the uh, icon for featured stories i have a story of the photos i took there's a picture of me at woodstock looking pretty much the same i do today sort of yep an amazing weekend of freedom and, and acceptability. And, you know, in this world today where everybody's afraid of everybody, you think back, like, how beautiful it was that people trusted each other. One vignette that was a strong memory was one afternoon we were sitting up on a hillside behind the stage, which was almost empty. And we're looking at the stage, and in front of the stage, there's half a million people. And behind the stage, there's about 30 of us spread out on this other hillside. And we were sitting there listening to music, and there was a pathway, and some kid was like laying there, passed out next to the pathway. And a couple of biker types, like really kind of rough-looking dudes, come walking up the path, and they stopped by the kid that was passed out. And one kid kind of tapped his arm and kind of pushed his shoulder a little with his boot. I started thinking, like, why are they bothering this kid? He's just sleeping. And the kid woke up and looked at him. He said, hey, man, you better turn over. You're getting sunburned. Huh? And the fact that these rough dudes, you know, took the time to help out somebody like that, that they didn't have to really, uh, something that I just remember, you know, as a real example of what was going on there. Tell me how a night out to see Ike and Tina Turner review opening for Sam and Dave changed your life. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, actually, the girl, one of the people who came to Woodstock with us, our friend Judy Rosen, uh, knew about Ike and Tina, and she said we had to see them, that they were just the most amazing act. And we took her up on it. We went to see them. I remember they opened for Sam and Dave. Ike and Tina was so amazing. Uh, I mean, I was at the Rolling Stones show several years earlier where they um, they opened for the Stones, but we were in this big arena. and We were up on the nosebleed seats, yeah. and whatever was going down on the stage wasn't really you know something you could be too aware of. But at the Felt Forum when, for the Sam and Dave show, Tina was just the most spectacular, exciting, thrilling show I had ever seen. And I watched her dance off the stage, and at the end of the show, there was a strobe light flashing. You would just see all these different, you know, how a strobe freezes the action. Yeah. And you would just see Tina frozen in all these different wild poses as she was dancing off the stage. And I remember I was so stunned. I watched, I just kept staring at the curtain where Tina had disappeared behind it. And Sam and Dave kind of came up and did an act. And I just kept staring at the curtain thinking about Tina. They played a few shows around New York. So a couple of days later, they played at a place called the Honka Monka Room. Uh, it's not something I can make up. The Honka Monka <laughs> Room in Queens. And I went out there. It was a funky little nightclub, uh, kind of bar, actually, with a linoleum floor in the basement. And I think the stage was about one foot high. A very funky little club. And they crammed the whole band with four horns and everybody onto the stage. And it was amazing. And that night, I brought my camera. And I started taking pictures. And that was uh, actually probably the beginning of my career. Because I got some really good shots that night. And towards the end of the show, as the strobe light started flashing, I only had a few frames left in the camera. And I thought I might as well use them up and see what would happen if I took a one-second picture and tried to capture several of the flashes in one picture. And I took about five shots. And four of them are useless. And one of them is probably one of the best pictures I've ever taken in my life. Because it just captures five images of Tina, one after another, just showing the intensity and the excitement that is Tina Turner. And then the miracle happens a couple of days later, uh, they played another show in New Jersey. And I brought the pictures with me. I, I had taken a few good ones that night. And I brought them with me to show my friends. And uh, as we were walking out of the theater, my friends saw Ike Turner walking from one dressing room to another. And she literally pushed me in front of Ike and said, show Ike the pictures. And he stopped and he said, what pictures? And I showed him and he goes, these are good pictures. I got to show these to Tina. And he took me in the dressing room. Tina liked the pictures, and uh, he told me to meet him in New York a couple of days later. And he started introducing me to people in the music business. And that was literally the real start of my career. I, I had been dabbling a little bit. The band that I lived with had gotten a deal. Uh, by the time they got a deal, they were called The Glitter House. And they actually met Bob Crew, the famous uh, producer of The Four Seasons and Frankie Valley. Mm. And Bob Crew liked him. And actually, The Glitter House can be heard on the internet as the vocal for the soundtrack for the Barbarella movie. Oh, okay. Uh, but then after that, Bob Crew did a, an album for the Glitter House. I was just beginning to meet one or two people. But after I met Ike and he introduced me to a publicist, and that guy took me to a party. And I met five, ten more people. And it just started uh, snowballing from there on. Every time I went somewhere, I'd meet more people and they'd ask me to take more pictures. And it just went on for the rest of my life.
Do you remember what your first big, was it an assignment or were you always just freelancing and shopping the photos around? Well, I think the first job that I got, I do remember Atlantic Records hired me to take pictures of Tommy James and the Shondells who were opening at a rally for Hubert Humphrey in a parking lot in Yonkers in the rain, an auspicious beginning. (laughs) But what I do remember actually was that I talked to the band and got to know them and drove home. They gave me a ride home. And that would be the kind of pattern for the rest of my life that I would make friends with the people I worked with. Not everybody, but quite a few of the people I worked with, I ended up friends with because I always kind of shared an artistic, you know, the lifestyle of musicians and artists, meaning I'm up at night all the time. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, right from the beginning, it's just seemed to work out. From the artists that I've heard talk about you and why they love you and your work so much is that you don't make it about yourself. You're there, kind of in the background. I think they appreciate that, that you're not like up in their face or... Yeah, I know. I mean, some photographers have a vision and they want to create something and they use the people as their models to create their idea. But I don't do that. I I like people to be natural. Uh, I don't give very much direction at all. I don't say, hey, give me more leg, baby. You know, Um, I kind of keep quiet, actually, and have a conversation with people and just let them be natural. Because I feel that if I tell them, turn this way or lift your shoulder, they're going to be trying to do what I'm thinking. And I'd rather take a picture of them being them and just getting a picture of what they're thinking. Right. You know, so I don't give very much direction. I I, I have patience instead. (laughs) You were an early adopter of the nascent home videotape market. People don't talk about that enough, but that was was amazing that you were able to get videotape of some amazing artists. Well, you know, in in this day and age, when everybody's got a color stereo camera in high def in their pocket, it's hard to remember that 1968, actually, the Democratic Convention was the first time that there was a portable video machine developed for the convention so that the reporters could go down on the floor and record things on a battery-operated videotape machine. It was an amazing development, you know, improvement in video technique, and the first consumer model, the Sony Portapack, was released in 1970. And I was very excited about it. And I, I talked my dad into buying me one, even though it was very expensive at the time, almost $2,000, I think. But then I just started making tapes of lots of bands and people just enjoyed watching them. I went to a place called Kenny's Castaways that had a real variety. They had everybody from Willie Dixon to Yoko Ono to Tracy Nelson, Larry Corio. I've actually played uh, there name in it. my that band. club had everybody. Oh, Kenny's? Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. The one on Bleecker Street or yeah. uptown? Bleecker Street, 1992. Oh, in the 90s. He moved downtown to Bleecker Street. Originally, um, when I was doing it in the 70s, he had a place on 84th Street, all the way uptown. Oh. Uh, but Pat Kenny was a wonderful guy. He let me tape everything that happened there. The New York Dolls played there pretty often. Uh, and I just started making videotapes. And then, I think it was around 1972, The because uh, the first, the only place you could show it was on the videotape machine. But the thing was, you didn't have to get film. You didn't have to get a projector. You didn't have to arrange for a screening room. You could just take the videotape machine that you record on and plug it into any television set in a dressing room or in a hotel room or at home and play it back on a TV. So it was super convenient. And then around 1972, Manhattan Cable started. You know, it's funny. People don't know that cable TV didn't always exist. Right. Uh, But cable TV started. And when they did, the government put in restrictions that if they were going to have all these channels to offer to people, they had to have two channels that were open to the public for public broadcasting, for public content. And in fact, since it was public free speech and it was not over the FCC airwaves, it didn't have to be censored at all. You could put whatever you wanted. So I ended up putting on a rock and roll show. Uh, and every week I would go to some different clubs and I would edit together a half hour or an hour and had shows with Patti Smith and the New York Dolls and Blondie and Robert Gordon and Jane County. And we put on all kinds of shows. And it was kind of interesting. At the first couple of years, we didn't have cable in my building. 
most people didn't really have the cable at the beginning. It took a long time before they wired up the whole city, particularly because it was expensive. I mean, <laughs> expensive. You know, nowadays, it's $200 or something. Back then, $25 for the cable was a lot of money. And so it took a while to wire it in. I remember after a couple of years, at one point around 75, I think I called up the company to see if they're ever going to get around to wiring our building. And the guy said, well, I don't think so, because our building was all artists and we were in the edge of a not, you know, not an expensive neighborhood. And then he, I told him, I said, well, I make the TV show, the rock and roll show, Bob Cruz Rock and Roll. And the guy goes, oh, you do that show? I love that show. Let me see what I can do. And within a week, we had cable in the building. Oh, nice. <laughs> so I, he said, you mean you can't even see your own show? I said, no. And the guy wired me up. That's great. So, I mean, it wired the whole building up. I didn't get a lot of feedback from the show until around 76 when more and more people started get, buying cassette. They had like three quarter inch cassette machines at home. Mm. I didn't want people recording my tapes. So I stopped running the show. And as soon as I stopped running it, all kinds of people were making comments. What happened to your show? I used to watch it all the time. <laughs> I was kind of surprised because I didn't know that so many people were watching it. We, we've edited some of the videos together because back then, because I was doing the videos, uh, first when I got with Ike and Tina, they loved having the videotape because I could tape a show and then we'd go right into the dressing room or in the hotel after the show and I could show it back and Tina could go over the show with the Iquettes like literally 10 minutes after show while everything was still fresh and, you know, go over, oh, look, you're turning left instead of right and, you know, fix the details. Yeah. And the New York Dolls just loved seeing themselves on TV. I actually have DVDs that are available uh, online. You can buy um, Ike and Tina Turner on the road, 1971-72. Sure. Uh, it's the only footage of Ike and Tina being themselves on and off stage. Uh, Ike in the studio, Tina at home actually cooking for her kids. And the other one is the New York Dolls. There are two of them. There's the New York Dolls all dolled up and another one called Looking Fine on Television. Well, I'll tell you, the videotapes that I've seen that you made that amazed me was of John Lennon. You were in the studio mm -hmm. with him in August of 1980 doing some color video, which has made mm -hmm. its way onto YouTube, which I'm sure you're not thrilled about. Uh, that was the first time I borrowed, actually, the owner of Max's Kansas City had a VHS camera that uh, was the first really compact with a VHS cassette fit in the camera. I mean, the machine I was using, the Sony Portaback, was a reel-to-reel 40-pound -reel box that you carried on your shoulder along with a 10-pound battery. And the camera itself was about another 10 pounds connected on a wire. But in 1980, we had this uh, VHS camera that had the cassette in the camera. And I borrowed it to show John how it worked. He was thinking of getting one. Uh, so that's only a few minutes of footage in the studio. I was just showing him, A, that it worked. You know, there was such a compact machine. And yeah. B, the amazing thing that it worked more in the dark. The, the early cameras didn't really work in the dark at all. But that is among the only footage period of him in that time period. I haven't seen it in years. <laughs> I'll send you a copy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but since I brought him up, the question you've probably been asked a million times, how did you start working with John and Yoko? Uh, through an interview, basically. Um, I actually met them for the very first time at the Apollo Theater. There was a benefit concert for the victims of the riot at the Attica Prison. And Aretha Franklin was going to be there. And I went there to see Aretha. And when I walked in, I heard the announcer say, John Lennon and Yoko Ono. And I felt like I was hit by lightning. I was finally in the same room. They had been in New York for uh, about four or five months. And it was reported in the newspaper that they were riding bikes in Greenwich Village. And, and in fact, they had moved into a townhouse literally a half a block from my house in Greenwich Village. But I'd, I'd never seen them. Everybody had reported they saw him walking down the street or whatever. Uh, and then at the Apollo Theater, there they were. After the show, they were waiting for their car backstage, and a few people were taking a little snapshots, what we call selfies nowadays. Back then, they had little instamatic cameras. Yeah. And I took a couple of pictures. And at one point, John just happened to say, you know, people are always taking our picture like this, and we never see them. What happens to these pictures? And I said, well, I live around the corner from you. I'll show you my pictures. And he said, you live around the corner? I said, yeah. He said, well, slip them under the door then. 
And so uh, I went by a couple of days later with some prints. I didn't quite slip it under the door. I did ring the bell. <laughs> uh, and much to my surprise, Jerry Rubin answered the door. Uh, I guess he was visiting and did him a favor by answering the door. But I remember he asked if they were expecting me. And I said, no, I just came by to give them something. And I gave him the envelope and I left. And uh, later, after we did get to know each other, Yoko said that impressed them because nobody just gave them something. Everybody wanted something from John and Yoko. And I was the only person who came by and just said, here's some for you. So they remembered that. Like, who was that guy, you know? Uh, but then in the spring, I think around March, there was a magazine called After Dark uh, that was doing an article, actually not on John and Yoko, but on the Elephant's Memory Band. And John and Yoko were using the Elephants as a backup group to record an album. And so uh, the interviewer was going to interview uh, John and Yoko, and he asked me if I would come and take pictures. And we actually met them in a hotel where they were doing the interviews, and I took some good pictures there. And then after the interview, since the story was about the elephant's memory, and I knew that John and Yoko were going to meet the elephants that night, they were going to record with them, I asked if I could come along. And they said yes, and I ended up spending the night in the studio with them and getting a whole bunch of pictures. Well, it was Sunday, bloody Sunday, when the shots the people there. later they contacted me and they wanted to use one of the pictures in their album cover sometime in New York City I have a nice picture of John and Yoko and the whole band together and it was then that uh, actually the drummer Rick Frank brought me to John and Yoko's house and I showed them the pictures I had taken and then I showed them other pictures that I had and we had a conversation and we liked each other and at the end of the conversation I remember Yoko telling me that they always wanted to stay in touch with me and uh, I'm still in touch with Yoko today that's really cool did you travel to L.A. with John when they split? Did you ever go out there with him? No. Never? That's why I'm, maybe I'm still alive today. Yeah, <laughs> A couple right. of people who did <laughs> didn't make it. Right. Uh, no, the lost weekend was lost. And, and uh, I actually, there were times when I, you know, I'd read about it in the newspaper or I'd hear from friends that he was out of control. And, and sometimes I wondered if he'd ever get back to New York or if he'd keep going and end up relaxing in Hawaii or something. Yeah. When he came back to New York, actually, I saw him just after he came back. He was recording with Harry Nilsson, and he asked me to come down to the studio. And then a, a month or so later, he asked me if I would take pictures for the Walls and Bridges album cover, where we did a whole series of pictures of John's face. And he had wanted me to do it in a very simple, quick way. He didn't want to go to the studio, and he didn't want to... It was just a whole series of pictures, just close up of his face. So I went to his house. Uh, we had a penthouse. He, he still hadn't gone back with Yoko yet. He had a penthouse apartment with a little roof, so we went out on the roof and we took the pictures of his face, and then I suggested we take some more pictures, so he'd have pictures for publicity. And we started taking a couple, and the skyline was all around us, and I had given him that New York City t-shirt a year earlier. Uh, it was something that guys just sold on the sidewalk on a blanket in Times Square. It wasn't from a store. Uh, but whenever I'd see the guys, I really liked the graphic of it. So I bought a couple for myself. One night I bought one for John. And uh, when we were up on the roof, I said, do you still have that shirt I gave you? And I know he must have liked it because he had been in L.A. and back for a year. And he knew where the shirt was. And he went right inside and got it, came out and put it on. We had no idea that picture was going to become so well known. Right. But I think there's a casualness to it and an intimacy because we were you know, so friendly and he looks like he's open and ready to have a conversation. And so a lot of people really like that picture. A year before John was murdered, I was about eight years old and I bought the Anthony Fawcett book one day at a time. And it was probably the first time I ever saw your name in a, in a credit. 
And right on the cover, there's that iconic John Lennon at the Statue of Liberty. I think that was one of the first Lennon books I was involved in. Oh, was it? Yeah. Um, but there he is with the Statue of the, Liberty. Can you go into that? Um, well, it was a little bit, it was in the fall of 74 after we'd taken the New York City pictures. You know, the government was trying to throw John out of the country because the Nixon administration was afraid that he was going to gather support against Nixon. So they started this hokey case about how he was arrested for having a couple of joints, which actually, eventually, the policeman that arrested him was arrested for planting the marijuana with several rock stars. But uh, anyway, the case was uh, important at the time. They were trying to deport John Lennon, and I felt that you know the Statue of Liberty is a symbol of welcome, and we're supposed to be welcoming great artists like John Lennon. So I suggested to him that we could take a picture at the statue. I was very happy that he agreed with me that it, was, it would be a great symbol, and we went out there. The actual doing it was pretty simple. Um, I felt that he was a tourist from England. I didn't need to get a permit from anybody to go and take a picture. Like every day, there's tourists taking pictures of themselves out there. So we just took the ferry out there. We walked around to the front. Uh, the hard part is trying to line up a person who's about six feet with a statue that's 305 feet. Right. And to try to get the whole thing in perspective, because it's on an island, and there's only so far you can go back, you know, or you fall in the water. <laughs> right. Uh, so I do remember trying to juggle it around because I, I work very simply. It's not like I went out there a week in advance with four assistants and tried to measure everything and use six lenses. I, I just took my camera bag and went with John and made it work. You know, that's how I do things. And it did work. But I was very proud of that picture. It wasn't used very much. Most of the magazines didn't want to be involved in John's political case. But after John passed away in the 80s, the picture took on a much larger meaning. Right. You know, because it, it really relates to personal freedom and liberty. And I think that John is a symbol of personal freedom, like the statue. Absolutely. Interesting things about you that always intrigued me is that you had this great affinity for John Lennon and for classic rock artists. But you were also at the cutting edge of what was happening in New York in the 70s with the bands that were playing Max's Kansas City and CBGB's. Tell me how important being in those places was to your career. Well, it was my life. I wasn't there so much as a reporter. I was there because it was my lifestyle. People say, how do you become unobtrusive in the situation? I said, by becoming part of it. You know, a lot of my assignments were not assignments in a sense. Like I didn't go to Max's because an editor told me to take a picture of a band. Uh, I had the opportunity to, I was working with Lisa Robinson and Lenny Kay and Richard Robinson on a magazine called Rock Scene. And Rock Scene magazine covered the whole scene. So it wasn't that you would just interview a singer about, you know, what he likes to have for breakfast or what hotels he likes and then put one picture of a guy with a microphone. It was mostly almost like a comic book because it was mostly photographs. And we had lots of pictures of the whole scene. So if I was with a band, I could have pictures of the band on the bus, uh, relaxing, going into a dressing room, doing a sound check. I'd have pictures of the managers and the road managers, the promoters. Everybody was worth being in rock scene. So I just always had my camera and I always had an excuse to take pictures of anything I liked because it would be in rock scene. And so sometimes if I saw, I remember one time there was a group called the B-Girls. and I showed up at a club with Johnny Thunders and the B-Girls were there. And I said, oh, let me get a picture of Johnny Thunders meets the B-Girls. And that was a rock scene moment. Yeah. And we would do that every day. <laughs> We'd put people together and call it a rock scene moment. Yeah. It's all online now. There's actually a website called Rock Scene Stir, like scene, S-T-E-R, where you can see all the rock scene magazines. And it's the history of the 70s in rock and roll. Uh, because, yes, we covered everything. We covered Led Zeppelin and John and Yoko, but also we had the first pictures of the Sex Pistols and The Clash. I think that's some of the earliest. It was Lisa Robinson told me to see Debbie Harry yep. uh, before Blondie when she was in a band called The Stilettos. I remember Lisa saying, this girl's so beautiful, she's going to be a star. And I walked in the room the first time I saw her, I knew Lisa was right. Mm. It's very hard to take a bad picture of Debbie Harry because she just always looks good. Darling, 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 darling. 
but it was my lifestyle. That actually, it was funny that after meeting John and Yoko in the Elephant's Memory, uh, John went and produced an album for the Elephant's Memory, and uh, they asked me to do the album cover. And that's when I met the managers of the Elephants. And when I was at their office, one of the guys who worked in the office, Tony Machine, said, "Oh, you should come and see this other band that we managed. They're called the New York Dolls." And that's actually how I found out about the New York Dolls. A lot of people downtown were already going to the Dolls for a few months at the Mercer Arts Center. I hadn't heard about them yet until I brought the Elephants pictures by, and then I went to see the Dolls, and I was completely blown away. It was like walking into this Fellini satiricon. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, it was just <laughs> such chaos and such fun. Everything just going crazy. And, and then I got to know them and work with them. And they liked me and they liked my pictures and they liked my videotapes. They loved seeing themselves on TV. And one thing led to another. And, uh, you know, I'm still in touch with Sylvain and some of the band today. They were way ahead of their time. I don't think America was ready for them in 73. Salvador Dali, Alice Cooper, and a chocolate eclair. What do those things have in common? <laughs> well, um, Salvador Dali was making the world's first moving hologram, where the people in the hologram actually moved. And uh, he wanted to use Alice Cooper because he felt that Alice Cooper, as a rock star, was a surrealist, similar to Salvador Dali's surrealism. Mm. They asked me to come by to take some pictures. I remember it was kind of an odd day. Uh, we were in a loft. Uh, at one point, um, the elevator door opened and a little man in a bowler hat walked out with an attache case and a beautiful girl. And behind him, there was a large thug with a machine gun. The, the guy with the machine gun stayed by the elevator. and Nobody went in or out until um, the guy in the bowler hat brought the attache case over the table. He opened it up and took out a pillow and he took out $20,000 worth of uh, Harry Winston diamonds and a tiara and a necklace. and put them on the pillow and the beautiful girl brought them over and presented them to Dolly. And Dolly placed them around Alice's neck in his head the way he wanted to use. He said he had real jewelry because he wanted it to really sparkle in the hologram, and it does, actually. The hologram exists, and it's at the Salvador Dali Museum in St. Petersburg, Florida, and in uh, Spain. I, forget, I can't pronounce the Spanish town, but the Dali Museum in Spain has the other hologram, and they actually sell a postcard of my picture of Alice and, and Dali. The chocolate eclair is because Dali is holding an object that he called the brain of the pop star that has a chocolate eclair in the middle and ants running across it to get to it. And that was placed behind Alice's head. Uh, if anybody listening to this has any idea where that brain of the pop star is, Alice is willing to pay a really good amount of money for it. I it heard that. It's like the, the holy the grail of rock and roll. Right? Alice has been putting out words. Yeah, where's my head? Where, where's my brain <laughs> of the pop star? You know? I'm going to ask you one of those lame talk show questions. Which one? <laughs> what was the worst experience you ever had? Oh, uh, well, there's a few hard times, you know. Um, well, I'm saying, uh, well, the worst experience, it's hard to list, you know, because, um, you know, things get tough, but I kind of like a challenge. Uh, I mean, I remember when I was taking pictures of Alice in uh, Toronto and there was a blizzard and we ran out of film and I had to walk like a mile across a uh, shopping center parking lot, literally three feet of snow, just kind of pushing my way through the snow to get to a mall to get film. That was difficult. But that's just normal. Like when you accomplish something like that, you always feel better. Like the, the harder it is, the better I feel when I've done it. So I don't really think about that was a terrible day kind no. of thing. Like it was a terrible day. Accomplishing it was a great achievement. Any artists that's that were just a pain in the ass to work with? There's a few, but I won't give them the publicity. Mm. 
mention their name. No, but can, can you tell the story without mentioning them? Or no? There's only one or two that I didn't get along with, but yeah, fuck them. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Am I allowed to say that? You want to edit that out? <laughs> yeah, don't fucking swear on my show, Bob. Oh, okay. <laughs> Besides the Lennon stuff, what's the one you're most proud of? Well, the Tina Turner picture. Uh, also, there's a picture of uh, Chuck Berry where he looks like he's kissing his guitar. That's very powerful, but very simple. Yeah. Uh, and it just sums up the power of rock and roll and its simplicity. There's a live picture of The Clash, which really captures the power and the glory that is The Clash. Anything now inspiring you as a photographer? Well, not this week. Because <laughs> nobody's <laughs> going anywhere. You know? No, but I mean... Um, yeah. But yeah, this year I was actually looking forward to seeing Green Day on their tour. Done a lot of work with Green Day for the last 25 years. A year ago, last September, I published a book with Abrams on Green Day that Billy Joe and the band all contributed uh, comments and captions. And Billy Joe actually hand-wrote a forward for the book. And he came up with a graffiti artist who put little drawings throughout the book. It's a really fun 25 years of Green Day. And they were going to carry it on their tour, which was supposed to start last February in Singapore and go around the world and end up uh, here in America in August and September. And of course, it just you know cascaded one one leg of the tour after another until the entire thing was canceled. And now it's postponed for next year. and We'll see what happens. Anybody that you always wanted to shoot and never did? Yes, Otis Redding. Uh-huh. Uh, I was a big fan of Otis Redding, and I always wanted to meet him. He passed away before I had a chance. Um, I actually met Jimi Hendrix once for a minute on the sidewalk. I showed him my Tina Turner picture, and he said it was a great shot. And I said, I'd like to take a picture of you. And he said, we'll meet again. But then we never did. The book will be out October 20. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not having a big party, but we're having a virtual party, and uh, we'll see what we can do. It's uh, 400 pages, I think a little over 400 pages. So there's a lot to read, a lot of stories. Uh, so far, the people that have read it like it, uh, you know, uh, besides my editor and my wife. <laughs> um, but for instance, Publishers Weekly, uh, which is quite impressive, they gave me a star. They only give one or nothing. Uh, they gave me a star, and they called it a spectacular memoir and a must read. I think those are good phrases to use. <laughs> and that's right place, right time, the life of a rock and roll photographer. Well, thanks.
See what I did there, Dave? Photograph? Bob Bruin? He's a photographer? photographer. Huh? You know what? Yeah. This this shows how clever you are because uh, the obvious choice would be to go Def Leppard there. But you didn't do that, did you? No, 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 no. See, I am one of those geniuses you read about. I've read about them, sure. And I want to thank Bob Bruin for being on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast this week. And remember his autobiography, Right Place, Right Time, The Life of a Rock and Roll Photographer, will be out on October 20th. You can reserve your copy today on Amazon.com. And seriously, I really do highly recommend everyone go to his website, BobGruen.com, to see hundreds of photos of everyone from Black Sabbath to Michael Jackson. It's really an incredible body of work that deserves to be seen by music fans everywhere, damn it. I absolutely am checking the book out. I'm so psyched after hearing that interview. And, you know, as I said to you, just not knowing the breadth of what he had accomplished, this is this is great. This is like finding a uh, a box in the attic just full of toys that you forgot about. Yeah, and he, I mean, what a nice guy. He's so New York, which I love. <laughs> you know, it's probably why him and Lennon got along so well, and so many right, other bands right. too. Just he's a no bullshit guy. Do you ever see the early footage of, let's say, Elvis or the Beatles or any of them, and the photographers that you see a you know, middle-aged men smoking a cigar with a, you know, with a hat on and the suit and they look like they're miserable because they probably don't want that assignment. They all look like extras from uh, the movie, The Front Page, right? Exactly. Like, like that, that cliche just carried through. Yep. And they're yelling, Beatles, look over here, Beatles. Turn this way, Beatles. <laughs> it wasn't until the generation that grew up on rock and roll started taking over the, the journalistic side of it that things started really happening, you know, with photography, writers, critics. Well, that's true. I, I think that I think you have a good point there, especially with the press and, and the people who were writing about and, and taking the pictures and, and just kind of you have to care about something new that's coming up to I don't want to say portray it correctly, but 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 those guys had the emotional investment in that music. And and you can see it in their work, in their writing and in these these pictures. The uh the generation before them, they didn't care about it. As far as they were concerned, it was it was noise and Frank Sinatra couldn't tell the difference between a Lennon McCartney song and a George Harrison song. <laughs> exactly right. Even when you look at those press conferences, if you can call them that, 
that when the bands are standing up there like the Stones and they're asking the most inane questions. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, we've come such a long way. And I don't think a lot of the younger people today even realize that there was a time when what we take for granted today would never have been accepted in Washington, say. Like, you know, I mean, you, you see rock bands at an inaugural. You wouldn't have seen that in the 60s or 70s. I think, well, the Carpenters got to play at Nixon's inaugural, I think. So that that's... Oh, did they really? Yeah. Is that is that true? That is true. And so... Right, so now I have to go try and find video of that. That's that's just strange. Yep. Now, you're certainly old enough to remember when there was a controversy because starting in 77, I think, the Beach Boys would play 4th of July at the mall on Washington. Okay. And when Reagan came in, James Watt canceled them. Secretary of the Interior. That's right. And said, well, you know, because they bring a drug culture crowd into, it wouldn't be appropriate. So this year we're going to have Wayne Newton and the crowd boo them, threw things at them and kind of felt bad. But the very next year, they had the Beach Boys back. There's, they- there is absolutely zero reason to feel bad for the guy who proposed strip mining the Grand Canyon. I think that you can sleep safely at night not having any pity for James Watt. I thought you were say Wayne Newton. I said, when did he do that? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Wayne he's actually, you know, he is the, uh, not many people know this, but he is the basis of the character Dr. Evil. Uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of people think that that was an SNL skit. It's not. That's based on Wayne Newton and what he actually does with his fortunes in his private world. Really? Yeah, it's true. I've learned he's something a, new. He's an evil, evil man. Are you serious? <laughs> I thought, come on, Dave. <laughs> on my own show? I, <laughs> t- I have no idea what I'm talking about I, right I, now. I, no, I'm just making that up. I've He's got, Wayne Newton, for God's sakes. The, well, Donka Shane, I mean, that's kind of- yeah, Well, that that actually right there, that is kind of evil. That's I got mean, sadism written all over it. Right? I think that there are satanic overtones. And if you look, if you play that song backwards, it actually says, I love thee, dear devil. Is that true? Yeah, it is also true. Oh my God! The things you learn on the—it's only rock and roll. <laughs> Dave, did you you stinker? You know, you mentioned 1977, and it's it, like there are certain years that always kind of come up because whatever it was, and you can see it in in reverse, but maybe you can't see it at the time. And, and both of us were far too young at the time. Mm. But that year and what happened—and I'm not even talking so much about how punk was changing rock, but. I've always been taken with this quote from Don Henley, where he said that right around and after the bicentennial, 76, 77, that's when it all turned dark. And I feel like there's like there's a whole movie or or TV series to be had in that quote right there. I, I, HBO was probably trying to do it when they, they did uh, vinyl. Didn't Mick Jagger executive produce that? He did. Surprised. Yeah. <laughs> he's no, he's another evil genius. Uh, he, he's, been in, he's been in business with Wayne Newton for years now. Right. Now, you do realize that the script of Star Wars was based on the life story of Charlie Watts. Charlie Watts? Yeah. Okay. A lot of people don't know that. Damn it, I can't pull it off like you do, Dave. How do you, <laughs> how do, you do it? I was just going to keep going with You're it. You're the That's- genius. You're the genius. I, uh, Charlie Watts, uh, you know, uh, his grandfather was a Yoda-like character. And uh, even spoke in that broken syntax. Shh, listen, Dave, do you hear that sound? People What's turning that? off their computers. Oh, they turned them off like, hours ago. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm just going to relax then. Pants are coming off. <laughs> oh, my kidding. They've been off since episode two. <laughs> so, Dave, let me just ask you as we wrap up. Yes. Because I'm bored to tears. First concert you. you ever saw. Ooh. 
So the first, uh, let's, well, yeah, I would say the first sort of official concert, like an actual known band that right. bought tickets and went to see them would have been the Marshall Tucker Band at URI in like 1982 or 83. Really? Yes, they were set up on the football field, you know, a big crowd, uh, certainly uh, thousands of people there. This would have been after their heyday, though, and you're talking about a band that would have filled stadiums easily yeah. five years uh, previous to that. Yep. But uh, but they were great, and that was definitely the first concert. What made you want to go see them, though? So as a guitarist, I, I loved the Southern rock stuff in the 70s, and uh, Toy Caldwell, uh, who was the lead guitarist for that band, just what a phenomenal um, combination of country, rock, and jazz. One of those guys who just had a lot more jazz chops than you would have realized. And yeah. they were a jam band, which again, appealed to me as a guitarist because all we ever want to do is solo anyway. Uh, so <laughs> that band and uh, like the Charlie Daniels band was another one uh, similar where with uh, that sort of of combination of of influences and man i i played all those records i learned all of that stuff uh when i was uh, first first picking up electric guitar worst concert you ever saw Ooh. did Merv and griffin just come back from the dead Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so was that was that mike douglas or merv griffin that i'm not merv. sure Ooh. that was merv okay yes okay. ava gabor's on today Ooh. <laughs> Clearly, you spent too much time watching him. Oh yeah. So, a so, uh, worst concert. Um, I, I don't. I don't know that I have a worst concert per se. I can tell you the worst band that I saw because they were the opening act at that concert. Okay. Uh, well, and this would this would be a tie. This would be a tie. It's a tie between Girl School and Vinnie Vincent. Uh, Girl School, I believe. Opened for Deep Purple. Uh, the, on the, the, well, I think I remember it was the concert tour. Okay, this is so in the weeds, but I don't care. People, I care about this stuff. I get that you don't, but I'm going to talk about it. So uh, this was the concert tour where Deep Purple had had Ian Gillen back in the 80s and 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 a, a huge burst of, of creative energy. They put out a great album called Perfect Strangers and then immediately started not getting along with each other. So they were up and down and up and down. He quits and gets replaced by the guy who had been the most successful singer for Rainbow, Richie Blackmore's other band. That was Joe Lynn Turner. Joe Lynn Turner, so, yeah. Yeah, so they did one concert tour with Joe Lynn Turner as the lead singer. And uh, I'll never forget because uh, I was, a, again, from that 70s stuff, huge Deep Purple fan. Uh, Richie Blackmore is still maybe my top rock guitarist of all time. And uh, and they came out and they opened with the song Burn, which they never would have played with Ian Gillen because it was from the time that he wasn't in the band. That was a cover and deal, I, right? That was Coverdale. Yeah. And I, I literally lost my mind for the next two hours. One of my great, great experiences at a concert. So uh, girl school had to open for this and they got, they literally got booed off the stage. It was, uh, you know, there's, there's that sense of, I feel bad for them, but they're also terrible right now. And I want to hear purple. Cause, and those, sometimes a mismatch is, yeah. is, 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 it can be cool when it's rock and roll mismatch. Um, yes. or, 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 or at least, uh, you know, Americana. In other words, you get like a blues, like a BB King opening up for the who that's cool. Sure. Willie Nelson opening up for the Stones. That's cool. Um, I saw 
Speaking of the Stones. That's great, by the way. And I didn't know that that happened. When was that? That actually had, did happen. Um, Bill Graham used to put those kind of shows together. Oh, that makes sense. Sure. Always at the Fillmore because he wanted to educate as well as entertain people. Truly mismatched gigs is what I saw with Stones at Fenway Park with the Black Eyed Peas opening up. Oh. Yeah. So I, I think that the, the first set, let's rather than calling them mis- mismatched, uh, to me, they're complementary. Yeah. You know, they're not the same thing, but when you put them together, maybe they're more than the sum of their parts. Right. And it sounds like putting Black Eyed Peas with the Stones that you're going for that, but I, I can't see how that one works. Water bottles were cascaded. Um, uh, uh, don't do that. People. I don't like that. I don't like that. No, no, no. people get hurt. Yep. Don't do that. In fact, I was, I went with a buddy of mine who's also a musician, um, that, you know, and he said same thing because they're trying yeah. and they were, you know, they were putting on their show. It's just not for the, for this crowd. Right. The right. famous story about Prince opening up for the stones on the 81 tour, get booed off the stage. And <gasps> the famous line from Keith Richards was, if you come out in front of a Stones crowd with the name Prince, you better be ready to deliver. And he wasn't. Really? Before, well, I mean, that, that's pretty early in his career. That's it. And, he, he'd had that one know, hit. What was that first hit? At that point, I don't I even want to be your dirt, lover. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was going to say, I, I don't even think Dirty Mind was out yet, no, was it? No. Yeah. No. Um, right. Probably the weirdest pairing was, and it's funny too, I saw Bob Seger in the Silver Bullet Band, 1983, The Distance Tour. And there was an opening act that I'd never heard of, a singer, boring as hell. And there was this one girl sitting next to me that loved him, had a backstage pass, and kept saying, do you want to go see him? I'm like, "Mm, not real. Thank you, though, you know? (laughs) And you know who it turned out to be? Because he was unknown then. Michael Bolton. Ah, he had great rock chops. Yes. And he he made some 80s rock albums before he turned into uh, the balladeer. That's it. His hair was short. I remember that. Yeah. He didn't look like what I well, we've come to see him with the balding mullet. <laughs> <laughs> but, That's a great look. How could you possibly criticize that? I know. And then the one thing I can't stand is when they put a comedian to open up for a band. I don't get that. <sighs> okay. But had you seen in the 70s, Steve Martin open for Linda Ronstadt, well, would different. that not have been one of the iconic shows of your life? Yeah, of course. And he did. I, you know, he used to open for rock bands when he was uh, up and coming as a stand-up. Sure. You know who else opened for Linda Ronstadt? And I guess they had a romance for a while. Uh, Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey. Believe it or not. Yeah. Yep. When? Right. Probably up to and before Living Color. Wow. He had been around. You, you, you know? have stunned me into silence. Yeah. Look it up because I know yep. they were romantically linked. No kidding. Yep. Yep. I don't know what to do with that information. And I'm I not truly... making that up. <laughs> it's true. Oh, you would have had me completely if you made that one up. I yeah. bought into that completely. Yeah. Jim Carrey. Well, I, you know, good for him. And then there was that time that she was dating Slappy White. <laughs> I know just what you let, let, I know yeah, I'm thinking yeah. of Letterman's last last episode, but I'm Stop not going to quote it. Chef. I'll leave that to you. So you do that. One of Tom Hanks' greatest moments, and folks. Look that up, too. <laughs> well, Dave, we come to that time again. Oh, no. I know. Just when we're having fun. Don, this is always a blast. I really do appreciate you having me on the show. And I love the show. I am completely serious. I listen to it all the time. And I urge everyone to subscribe. Smash that subscribe button wherever you happen to listen to your podcasts. Hit the like button. And now we're on the Amazon podcast, too. So 
I saw that this week. We're hitting the big time, folks. Sure. And I want to thank Bob Gruen for being on and DJ Loria. And we hope to see everybody again right here on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. And to play us out, Dave, I want you yeah, to tell Dave. me what song from your voluminous back catalog <laughs> are we going to be doing today? Well, I'm going to uh, I'm going to go with the newest thing because I made this album with my students and we are so so proud of it. So I wonder if you could cue up "You Love for the People," a big old choral power pop number for you, Dave. Maybe. Okay. Thank you.